Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Chris, before we break anything down, I am just let's break down how you're doing. I am doing great because I'm looking at the amazing view. We are here in your offices at the Washington Free Beacon. Instead, Washington Free Beacon Global HQ. And instead of our normal little garret at the American Enterprise Institute, and it's very swanky here. This is a very swishy place. I feel like I am a Beltway Bandit Boeing executive who is cutting a deal to sell JDAMs to the uh, Pentagon. It's very nice in the view of Washington. I wish very I was amazing. actually cutting that deal rather than recording a little But uh, podcast, like I'm sitting here but... looking at the National Cathedral perched high on the hill and I can turn and here's the Kennedy Center right next to me. It's very nice. Well, we are happy to have you here. It's very good to be here, though your beverage selection is not as nice as it is not quite well it is as nice it is not as like refrigerated and well organized mm-hmm. here <laughs> you know well look under- at ai it's like you never even see everything's just lined up perfectly there was a great youtube video of a guy showing off his fridge with everything like perfectly lined videos. up that's what ai ai's uh like food and bev selection ours is a little more cash you know we're, we're not fancy well i would say the cardboard cutouts of hillary clinton uh, donald trump and uh, ivanka isn't there an ivanka no i think it's uh kate upton uh oh. niece of of the recently death-threatened fred upton congressman from michigan all wearing lays that greet you as you come in the door tell you that you are in a a fun and there's whimsy here and the wall of heroes that's right. You didn't even mention that, where we have people like Amy Coney Barrett and uh, who you else? You have Calvin Coolidge. Calvin so Coolidge, I'm, Elliot I'm good Abrams. With that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot Abrams and Calvin Coolidge, never before grouped. Have never before they been have now grouped. now been. Now they have. On our front page this week. These are the stories that we thought were most important. Chris. A lot of reporting on the future of MSNBC with the fabulous Brian Williams announcing his exit after 30 years, Uh, his career obviously marred by a scandal in which he misrepresented, he spread some misinformation about uh, being under. Well, there's there's two, to me, there's two stories here. There's one about Brian Williams, and I know that you and I have, have touched on this before i am much more sympathetic to brian williams than a lot of people are and we can we can who among us hasn't embellished a little bit about our wartime experiences i I think the thing and and the the real story here is about what's going to happen at totally i agree and so we can come back to brian williams but so we've got brian williams is 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 out there's reporting that uh, he might go to ABC or where? CNN Plus. CNN Plus and then someplace else that he was in negotiation so with someplace else. So this is not a retirement. Right. He, I think, was pushed out. At the New- There's a New York Post story that suggests he was pushed out, which says he doesn't have 
the, the NBC CEO, Andy Lack, and the MSNBC per, NBC president and the MSNBC president, Phil Griffin, who were his kind of patrons, have yep. both now left. There's new Rashida blood Jones. over there, and I think she was not as big of a fan. But the question is, no Brian Williams. He was there 11 p.m. And no now, Rachel Maddow. Right. She was there 9 p.m. And she's going to step. She's going to continue to work for the network, but step back. So that sounds she like can... in some kind of programming capacity. And then, so Maddow, Williams, uh, Joe, and Mika in negotiations. Cassie, uh, Casey Hunt, she left. She's out. And uh, according to Claire Atkinson, Atk- Atkinson, that uh, Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski are holding conversations about what's next for them, which may just be a shakedown that, you know, when your uh, network's going through turmoil, never a bad time to try to get well, a little know extra. your worth. Yeah, know, know your know worth, your as worth. Mika would say. Know your uh, worth. Okay, I have a potential theory about this, of what could happen to the network, that I don't think will happen, but I just want to throw it out there, which is when MSNBC started way back, you know, 10 years ago, they were the left-wing network. Well, they were the they first started out. They, they yeah they didn't start out that way, but ten years ago they became the left wing right. network. They they moved from a actually righty kind of leany little bit Debate-y. at the beginning, and then to debatey, and then to lefty. CNN was held holding itself out as straight news. Right now that Fox News is the right wing network, and CNN is the, the left wing network, network, there is. A market opportunity for MSNBC to, at the very least, have people on with different points of view yeah. than their hosts and anchors. And I am curious what path. And they have these a model in, in their corporate family. CNBC does a very good job of trying to b- have balanced discussion, bring different points of view. They they imp- it's easier and it's easier in a business reporting thing, uh, in a business reporting setting. But I think they, they do a, a pretty good job. Yes, I totally agree with you that you have these other efforts, whether it be News Nation, Newsy, which is from which is from scripts. You have all these people that are trying to fill this space for TV or TV like product that is not aggressively biased on purpose. I think MSNBC could definitely do that. Question is is there enough willingness inside the organization? And does, what's her name, Rashida Jones, does she really want to do that? I highly doubt it. But, I highly, I highly but doubt it, too. They're leaving, uh, they're leaving an opening. Yeah. I, 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 hope they, I hope they give it a shot because it would be interesting to see. I wonder, though, Rachel Maddow used to be really good, and she used to be interesting. She used to be funny. She had a lot of, you know, she and Roger Ailes were friends. Uh, she was a good. She was I remember back in the day, Tucker Carlson singing her praises. Yeah, how she is so talented, and she has exerted a ton of influence on the network over and, there. And that that anchovy, uh, what's his name, the the guy with the glasses, uh, Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes. I wrote a piece for National Review back in the day. We'll put it in the show notes. But it was about how Rachel Maddow had exerted all this influence over MSNBC. And one of the ways in which she had done it was hiring people in her likeness, which were the wonky Democrats with glasses like Chris Hayes and and also pushing out, helping to push out the populist Democrats. Like, um, does anyone remembers Ed Schultz and Al Sharpton? And it became like this intellectual wonky. She was bringing in Ezra Klein to do like seminars with. 
you know, NBC executives, et cetera. And by the way, MSNBC bears some responsibility for the creation of the overeducated left that David Shore writes about, that Jeff Maurer writes about, that is sort of having the moment of accountability after the Virginia loss and looking forward to the to 2022 and back at the missed gains of 2020 and what's wrong with the left. Rachel Maddow and that column of smug, intentionally nerdy, bespectacled, uh, that attitude of elite whites was probably ultimately not good for the Democratic Party. It felt good, and it does help you with habitual viewers who look like you and sound like you, but most of America does not look like the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I will point out yet again. And in conclusion, Brian Williams didn't think he was lying. Brian Williams, we know a lot more about memory now. Than that we was used actually to. a really great transition. Brian Williams. I, I disagree with you, but. Brian Williams did not think he was lying. Brian Williams retold a story over and over again. And what we know about memory now that we didn't used to is that we re. We, ref- we refashion our memories every time we re-access them. And Malcolm Gladwell did a great episode just on this subject, and he uses an experiment that I would... Pull this clip for the Chris is a lib montage, uh-huh, Nestor. Uh-huh. Is, this, is this also what happened to Hillary when she said, did she really think she was under sniper fire in Bosnia too? Probably. <laughs> and do you think Bill Richardson believed that he had been scouted by the Oakland A's? Yeah, he told the story. So you you embellish a little bit, you retell the story, you embellish a little. I'm not saying it's a good thing to do, or I'm not saying it's okay, but there's a difference between... Just saying it's not his fault. No, it is his fault, but it's. I don't think he deserved... I don't think he deserved to be exiled for it. And he was a perfectly competent, good newsreader, who, by the way, was funny on 30 Rock. Okay. I think that's a load of BS, but uh, <laughs> up next, up next, Neiman Lab. Oh, yeah. The, like, Rachel Maddow acolytes over there are very concerned about the gender distribution of bylines in print and online media. So we have a whole report cooked up about this to tell us that bylines are more male than female. Well, so this Very is, upsetting. This is from the Women's Media Center that says that gender inequality in America's newsrooms continue across all media platforms as men overall receive 65% of news bylines. Of all the problems afflicting media, this is number one. Okay? Uh, 65% of news bylines and credits and women 34%, according to the Women's Media Center latest divided 2021. The media according gender to the bean gap. counters over at Neiman Lab. 69% of print news is written by men, 63% of newswire bylines, 57% of online news, and 50% of anchors and correspondent on primetime weekday evening news broadcasts are men. So congratulations, cable news. You've done it. You have, <laughs> you, for, for all of the complaints about you, uh, you have achieved absolute parity on you this You have question. helped perpetuate the patriarchy. No, they got to 50-50. They oh, made I see, it. I see. They made it. But I will say... Oh, God. I will say, not looking good. I, I, NBC, I do a- not... MSNBC and NBC are awesome. At MSNBC, on their website, they're 88% men, 12% women. And uh, NBC, 66% men, 34% women. So, and... and now they've got one less. They, they are losing Rachel Maddow. Well, for, uh, I think it's a little tough on NBC because they only have the one evening national news broadcast, right? They only have the, the one. So Lester Holt's maleness 
is going to be a big is going is going to be a big problem. Fox News clocked in at thirty nine percent female. ABC twenty eight percent female. That surprised me. I would think Fox would be like seventy five percent hot women and twenty five percent like you know fat back, old men. Back, back back in the day, it would have been sixty one percent at CBS and CNN is fifty three percent ladies. Ladies. It's ladies' night every uh, night. Okay, that brings us right to. Oh yeah, this is another <laughs> another the, the greatest. another exhibit of our media's obsession with gender and race. The most New York, New York Times, Times headline ever. Yeah, this was like Chef's Kiss, New York Times story. Uh, this is how they reported on the Glasgow, the climate talks in Glasgow. The headline is: Young women are leading climate protests. Guess who runs global talks? Just guess. Yeah, that was just a rhetorical guess. question by you the just Times. Guess. Okay, Is it so young women? No. It's the old Times men. reporter Samini Sengupta tells us that, quote, those with the power to make decisions about how much the world warms in the coming decades are mostly old and male. Yeah. <laughs> those who are angriest about the pace of climate action are mm-hmm. mostly young and female. And then it says there is a huge gap between how the leaders and the young activists view the summit. John Kerry, the 77-year-old U.S. climate envoy, and I'm not sure why they declined to put his race in there, marveled on Friday at the progress made at this summit, but definite ageism and shade being thrown at John Kerry. And they mentioned how old Boris Johnson is and how just it – the. Uh, what struck me about this is the structural inequities on display at this climate summit. And this is why the uh, the left in the West struggles to achieve so many things. If you think that a bunch of goofballs who are blocking traffic on British streets to demand more insulation be placed in homes, if you think that a bunch of goofballs who are protesting and running around in the streets if you believe that the children are the future, if you believe that the children uh, have wisdom that the olds do not, and this goes back, of course, to Greta Thunberg, the horrible, horrible... Celebrity truant. Yes, uh, patronizing, horrible coverage. What was her quote that was like, you did... Yeah, it's just the the screaming at these people and the the contempt that she has for everyone and all of this stuff. And And the idea that there is surprise or whatever... That, yes, guess what? The prime ministers and presidents of the world's countries are not uh, 20-year-old women. In a surprise move, they are not 20-year-olds. But also, like, who's the audience for this? Who reads this headline on the young protesters are women and, oh, my gosh, it's old men running global talks? Like, this to me was just such an encapsulation of what a limited audience, like, the Times is writing for. This is not general interest news at all. But also how counterproductive. Hardly even news. But obviously the, the bias of the reporter is effulgent. And if what you really wanted was action on climate change, it would be counterproductive to say, and that's why we need to bring children uh, in to lead these negotiations because they will work out better if we have a bunch of goofballs in Birkenstocks come in and do this instead of the people who were elected by their uh, respective nations. On to something 
more trouble, even more troubling. More troubling coverage, which is Project Veritas, which is the kind of renegade oh right wing oh boy group oh boy like guerrilla oh boy journalism group I founded love. by James O'Keefe. Mm. Their offices were raided by the FBI as part of an investigation into a diary stolen from Joe Biden's daughter, and so the FBI raided their offices and seized a bunch of stuff that could compromise source information here. Oh my gosh. Source information for Project Veritas? I see you think it's totally fine. I have no idea what happened, but treating Project Veritas as some sort of a journalistic outlet. Well, that's what I was kind of wondering. Like how do we know how it's decided? Like who is a who gets those protections and who doesn't? Well, so the First Amendment does not give special privileges to us. We don't get special privileges as journalists. Everybody has the right to free speech. And and it is also true, though, that and, that the power of the press uh, belongs to those who buy one and own one. You have to have a press to have, a, to, to have the power of the press. But what Project Veritas has demonstrated over the years, again and again and again, is that they hold themselves to no standard that sounds anything like journalism. They are an explicitly partisan advocacy group or implicitly partisan advocacy group. This happened last Friday and O'Keefe. Uh, so Project Veritas, everyone knows, is the it's a right wing outfit. Gonzo. Gonzo that it uh, looks to get dirt on Democrats and uh, mainstream media outlets. Famously, O'Keefe, uh, we met him when they when he dressed as a pimp and would uh, took young women into acorn organizing offices and got compromising video of selectively edited but yes compromising video of people offering advice for how to get benefits for the fake prostitutes uh, we also remember when they were he, supposedly foreign weren't they yeah like they came over on a ship or something i forget yeah i forget what all was in there but it was pretty preposterous and that he got arrested and or charged. He was arrested. Yeah, he got charged. For I trying know. To he tried to get break in, into the Louisiana Ma- senator Mary, Mary Land- Landrieu's office. Yeah, Mary yeah. Landrieu's phone lines. Dressed they, as a like. Uh, yeah, put on telephone co- worker. Yeah, or something. put on coveralls to try to get into her phones. They, they're, they're. It's it's uncool. And one of their specialties is going into bars and finding people who are inebriated, and then with flirtation or friendship or free drinks or whatever, getting them to say things that sound compromising. Anyway, uh, a raid by the FBI last week at apparently his apartment and other lo- and, and the homes of other uh, Project Veritas people looking for Ashley Biden's diary that was stolen in 2020 and that pages from which were, and was stolen in a burglary from her home in 2020. Now, some have made the inference that that perhaps Project Veritas or somebody and the New York Times tries to link O'Keefe to this guy who they hired to teach clandestine operations to Project Veritas, Veritasians, and that maybe this would, did they did somebody they know break in or whatever else? The- I'm not clear what the underlying crime that Project Veritas is suspected of committing is. Well, if you, if you, if you knew that someone had stolen something, and you received it, and it was not. So what O'Keefe's defense is, he says, well, we used good journalism here and did not publish what was in the diary. Well, they also said they turned it over right. to the police but last if, year. But we don't know 
I'll put it this way. We have, we have a number of problems in the granting of federal warrants. However, I doubt that, a ju- that any judge is going to let somebody go and ex- the FBI execute the multiple search warrants in people's home without some indication from prosecutors that there was uh, that there's a problem in terms of where it came from and how they got it. I don't think that I know enough to really have a take on this, but I will follow the story with interest because I am not, I do not have as much confidence as you after the, you know, FISA monitoring of well, Carter no, Page I, and, and, and blah, blah, blah. No, no, I, and I have, I had, I had, low confidence in the federal warrants, especially secret warrants prior to Carter Page. The thing with Carter Page was not that Carter Page was the exception to the rule, but probably most people who are subject to federal warrants who are not attached to presidential campaigns, probably those low standards that were used in repeating this, bringing the Steele dossier into that, repeating that, doing that stuff should alarm every American because that could be, that could speak to low standards that are used in those sorts of federal warrants. I just mean in this case, given O'Keefe's track record and given this is uh, and, and given uh, that this is an actual in-person knocking on the door. One of the problems that they we had we have with the FISA warrants is that there's no defense lawyer and nobody knows that it is actually taking place. This is happening in a more transparent way, so that could give that would give me a higher degree of confidence than something that happens behind closed doors. President Biden sat down for a rare interview with a local news anchor. Well, he doesn't do that many interviews, but this was, he sits down with a local news anchor. Chris, you wanted to have a gab fest about the interview. Well, not just uh, the interview. Let's listen, let's listen to the clip here where the local news anchor from Cincinnati's WKRC, Kyle Inskeep, has Biden on. Let's take a listen to this, this uh, awkward exchange. I want to turn to your polling really quickly here. The latest polling from USA Today has your approval rating uh, at 38%. So I'm wondering when you combine that with the election results that we saw last week, is this giving you kind of a sign that maybe you need to recalibrate some of your administration's priorities as you approach that one-year mark in office? Well, look, uh, the poll I saw just before I walked in on another station was my polling number is down, but it's 48 percent to 52 percent. But look, the, the, the point is I didn't run because of the polls. I think what you're going to see is the combination of what I did in the beginning in terms of the Recovery Act and then the, the and this legislation, as well as the legislation that we're about to pass, God willing, on infrastructure, on, excuse me, on what's called Build Back Better, everything from child care to pr- funding three and four year olds in school, et cetera. Okay, okay so, Chris, so I mean, that- he wasn't elected. He says he didn't run because of the polls, but he might lose because of the polls. Well, and if that's his like pitch for re-election, I mean, yikes. Well, I just well, I want to talk. Yeah, yeah. Well, we will see. And I, you are always correctly urging me to stay on the media and not politics because it is my tendency to talk about politics as a very political animal. But my love is here for uh, Kyle Inskeep and his good question for Joe Biden. That so. These little local news interviews are a phenomenon. The Bush administration used Dick Cheney for locals a lot and would put him on talk radio and do that stuff. But the Obama people figured out, here's what we can do. You want to get uncritical questioning. What you do is you go to the local yokels and you offer them three-minute interviews lined up in a row. You put the president in a room. In this case, you know, you, you drop him in front of a monitor 
and you just flip through and you go, you can do a bunch of locals. And, and we have some evidence on this about uh, the limitations that the White House puts on the anchors. They say, okay, we're going to give you this, but it's only on this topic and we'll give you three minutes or five minutes or whatever with the president, and then you can do this. So the Obama people figured out this was a great way to get Obama out there and do it. Leland Vittert, who I worked with at Fox, uh, became famous for being one of the guys who did this to Barack Obama and asked him difficult questions while he... And Kyle Linsky gets my award for he had his moment. He asked Biden a tough question, and Biden fumbled it right away. He yeah. also gave him the space to give a stupid answer that went on and on and on and on. He didn't like yeah, the step clip, on the, the, the news. The clip does not reflect it, but he, he spooled out from here all the way to the surface of the moon and back as he was looking for a way to talk about it. So there was no like mute button. The 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 real and, and by the way, a, a good piece of advice for an interviewer uh, is always don't be afraid of the silence. Let them talk. Let them keep going because they'll probably talk themselves into trouble. But the phenomenon of the looking for uncritical coverage in the local news does not work if Joe Biden is the president because the risk will definitely outweigh the reward because he will mess up. And I don't think the Obama strategy will work for Biden. Are we going to get a media censor at the Federal Communications Commission? Well, we're about to head. So the Wall Street Journal sounds the alarm. Well, well, we are definitely looking at a very different Federal Communications Commission. We have had a tie a 2-2 tie at the FCC for quite a while. And now Biden has his appointee, Gigi Sohn. Is that how you would pronounce that? S-O-H-N? That's, I think, how I would pronounce That's it. That's how I would, so my- Not a household name. My apologies if I have uh, mispronounced it, uh, Ms. Sohn. But Biden has selected Gigi Sohn as to break the tie, to be the Democrat that would break the tie. Now, Democrats are very excited about this because of the return of... So Ajit Pai, who was the chairman under Donald Trump, was a swashbuckling regulation repealer. He came in and really under the radar, rolled back a lot of the stuff that Obama had put in, uh, the Obama uh, administration had put in under uh, Tom Wheeler, who had been his FCC chairman, and Ajit Pai rolled back local ownership rules, uh, changed a bunch of stuff, and was really one of the great conservative success stories of the Trump administration. So, but they've been deadlocked since then. So here's the appointee. And what the journal did was go back through and look at the, the, the stuff that she has said over time in her previous roles. And she she worked for Wheeler, the recent, the aforementioned former chairman before Obama, GPI. Obama, FCC right. chair. So she has, her love of not the fairness doctrine. So for people who don't know, the fairness doctrine was the rule prior to the, that was from the early 60s to the early 80s that required broadcasters to give equal time to left and right, different sentiments and all that stuff. The, it was the abolishment of the fairness doctrine that made uh, right-wing talk radio possible and those other things. But her desire is to apply those rules to cable news, to apply those rules to Facebook, to apply those rules to everything. And it's a very radical idea, and it does add up to censorship. And it, uh, it you know, we've talked about this before. I think you can, you, we can point to just as much as we did earlier in this episode that cable news has done to divide, distract, and, and make American politics and uh, civic life worse as Facebook or anything that's happened in that span. But that still doesn't mean that the FCC will do a better job of regulating this than human beings can on their own. 
Well, it doesn't mean government intervention is the answer. Right. Like just because there's a problem doesn't mean we need GG to come in and regulate, you know, whether Facebook can uh, be a, a common carrier. Or whether or whether a Fox News has to put liberals on or whether CNN has to put conservatives on or whatever else. And we have been spared this kind of intervention for quite a while, but now it's uh, <laughs> it, it may be upon us. Speaking of federal involvement in the news, the bill that Democrats, as we are now, as we are now talking, are still trying to pass, which is the human infrastructure, it's social welfare spending package that they want to put through on their budget reconciliation bill, which I think is increasingly unlikely to pass, thanks to the squad. But this includes $1.67 billion that can be paid out to local news reporters as until 2026 up to $50,000 a pop to support local news payrolls. Boo. Boo. What is the free beacon what the free beacon has, has free beacon led is the against way. this because as as I think you said off mic a subsidized press cannot be a free press. Yeah. There are natural limitations when uh, you are beholden to the the entity or the people who are subsidizing you. And that is something we do not want when it comes to media coverage of the government. So, you know, if you think that the BBC and PBS and NPR are a model of the way, you know, news should work, then then you should be in favor of this. But but I'm against. So the I should I should point out that it's a tax credit, not a direct subsidy, but it has the same net effect because it improves your bottom line. But yes, this is something I've, I have always I have always opposed. There are things that we can do, federal, federal and state governments can do to make things, the atmosphere more favorable for local news, but subsidy does not seem like the right answer. Chris, the New York Times, so we really want to talk about the Virginia election, and Chris and I were both coverage of the Virginia election and the Lincoln Project stunt and the media coverage of it, which was like totally credulous and ridiculous. We didn't get to it last week and we were kicking ourselves, but the New York Times has given us a way back in with their On Politics newsletter, which asks readers, do Democrats have a messaging problem? And it's not just there. I I don't want to unfairly pick on them, but yes, the messaging problem, messaging, Democrats have a messaging problem, messaging problem. It is also true that Democrats have a policy problem. Uh, It is also true that Democrats, that, that, what James Carville is talking about. The messaging is about what your policy is going to be. Right. And the policies that relate to schools, the policies that relate to coronavirus, people have a problem, persuadable voters have a problem with Democrats' policies here. Now, you can have a messaging problem. I don't want to be facile. You can have a messaging problem that is you are not putting your right foot forward and that and all of that can be true. But there's been an undue emphasis on messaging here as opposed to having a more important conversation about our Democrats' policies in line with, with what voters really want. And there's by talking about messaging, what you're saying is, well, see, the policies are fine. It's just we're not talking about it in the right way, which invites people to believe, well, we're on the right track. We just need to, we need to spin it better. I mean, I'm all in favor of this because to the extent that Democrats like are not confronting their actual problems, okay. Well, like critical race theory is not the problem; it's our messaging around. Exactly. Well, there is no critical race theory. Don't don't it's you a, know? If it even exists, if it even exists, if such a thing exists, it's not the problem. So I think this is like the same sort of credulousness that we saw 
around the coverage of the Lincoln Project's stunt, which the Lincoln Project, uh, the ex-Republicans turned Democrats, had sent out a bunch of people to hold tiki torches in front of a Glenn Youngkin rally. And one of them was black. They were supposed to be white nationalists. One of them was black. One of them was a woman. They were supposed to be proud boys. And the media just reports, like, there were these white nationalists there to cheer Glenn Youngkin, not asking them. Well, well I, 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 I think it went like this. So I think that the Lincoln Project, which has been a grift of Trumpian proportions. It is an in-kind donation to Republicans. And it's, it's grifty, right? It doesn't do anything. Democrats like the ads. They watch them on YouTube. They send them $5, right? It's like, yeah, it's about time somebody told these Republicans to these, whatever. These principled men and women stood up. Right. And it's, su- it's super grifty. And, and had, there's no evidence that it has been effective. Susan Collins, who the Lincoln Project said was necessary to defeat in Maine, it would be important to heal the Republican Party that Susan Collins lose her Senate seat in Maine. And Susan Collins crushed in Maine. And their, their track record is abysmal, and I, I think it's very seamy. But they sent, as what I thought was an obvious stunt, people who were clearly not Charlottesville protesters to a Glenn Youngkin rally. They were dressed as the Charlottesville white nationalist guys in their khakis and blue button downs carrying tiki torches. And one of them was a woman. One of them was an African-American man. And I, when I first saw the images, it's like, oh, this is a stunt. I get it. But right-wing media first is like, do you see? This is obviously a plant. They're trying to convince people that the Proud Boys and whatever support a Glenn Young. And I'm like, no, this is, they're doing, they're trying to get attention. This is a, they're making a statement. No one could believe that this was true. So right-wing media got really frothed about this, that this was some nefarious thing. Uh, the problem here is not right-wing media. This was. I'm shocked that you would take that position. A nefarious thing. No, it's not it nefarious. It was totally it inappropriate. Was stupid. Uh, well, you're like believing their explanation. Do you think that they thought, I'd, maybe they're that dumb. But do you think that this was a secret? Do you think this was a I don't, Project Veritas I don't Veritas really time? think it matters. But once it got out there that the McAuliffe campaign was like, this is disgusting. The McAuliffe okay, people is, took so it seriously. Is, so this is what happened And they next. were fanning the flames of that. So it starts They on were the, encouraging people right. to take it seriously. So it, start, so it starts right. And then left is like, oh, my gosh, is this real? Is this true? And then the McAuliffe campaign. I don't think there was much asking. It was just an assumption. Yes. And true. it was very dumb. It was it was it was dumb. All the, it, what the Lincoln Project did was dumb, but it was just the kind of stunt that people do. And, you know, what you call the weeks, the weeks and days before the election, the silly season. It was a dumb, silly season stunt that was treated credulously by both the right and the left and the media. Well, yeah. Well, you and yet you repeat yes, yourself. Yes. The the idea that this was real and that, that this was going on was preposterous, but it was in both sides interest to say that it was. It was in right media's interest to say that this was a secret plot, to, that, that this was a, a, a covert operation gone awry instead of a stunt. And on the left, it was in their interest to say that these bigots actually support Glenn Youngkin in his fleece vest. And in the reality-based world, it turned out that Who would believe- the right leaners were correct that this was a very bad thing to do. And a an but, exhibition but, of bad judgment. But it wasn't... And that it actually wasn't disqualifying for Glenn Youngkin. But it wasn't... 
the people who thought that it was real, right, that that this was a, a, a sneaky sabotage effect, effort by the Lincoln Project were wrong. This was a dumb stunt, not a, a sneaky sabotage, right? No one could look at a black right. man and a woman that is true. carrying tiki torches in broad daylight and say, oh, it must be the guys from Charlottesville who came up here to support Glenn Youngkin. <laughs> they, must have, they must have had a meeting and said, let's dress just like we did last time. Oh, and by the way, do you have any black friends that you could bring? Because we think that would be great. Finally, finally. We're getting to our obsessions. I'm like out of gas here, so thank uh, God you're going first. America, you should know that this is a very pregnant woman. And that Eliana, <laughs> if, you, if you've never seen her, is a slight woman. She is, she is, she is a, a wisp. And she is apparently going to have a brontosaurus because she is a very preg. She's a very pregnant lady. And I still have two months to go. So you- thank God. I'm just going to like let you do this obsession and sit back and actually I'm going to go heat up my coffee. No, I, I can't obsess that long okay. about this. Well, oh. I am going to go heat up my coffee and be right back. <laughs> that That's how much Eliana cares about my obsession. Chris, I've now heated up my coffee. I am revitalized. I use the restroom. Oh boy. Um, I'm ready. I'm ready for these obsessions. <laughs> hit me. Hit me. And also, I want to apologize for the audience. We have these microphones that I keep banging in an effort to see my computer and drink my coffee. So any loud banging is me. It's just challenging. It's, clumsy, it's just cha- making, clumsy large make, woman. Making a human is very challenging. <laughs> Look, I, in no me, it, by no means do I intend to minimize the significance of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial that has consumed so much media attention. Uh, I understand why it has consumed so much media attention. It is a historically important case. This is, of course, the the trial of a young man who took a gun down to the streets of Minneapolis. If Uh, you haven't turned on your television in the past 48 hours. But this is the the young man who took a rifle uh, down in, in a misguided belief that he was going to be part of it, some citizen patrol to protect private property in Minneapolis during riots there. No, no, in Kenosha. Oh, in Kenosha. I'm sorry. In Wisconsin. Uh, in Wisconsin, not Minneapolis. And goes down and he will, what are the, and refresh me on the facts of the case since I've gotten my upper Midwestern states wrong for starters. Basically, he was threatened. Like the, there was but a standoff killed, between, he killed two people and he injured one person. And there was the, a sort of standoff between protesters and counter protesters and. The trial is like, was it self-defense or was it murder? And is he charged with murder in both? He is charged with murder in both. So he's up on two counts of murder. And as I recall, there was a difference between the two, right? There was one was what one of one of the charges is more dubious than the other, right? That one is seemed like more self-defense. And I listened to some well, of the I testimony. Think he's going to get off on both. But but anyways, we digress. So anyway, this this case has captivated the press in a profound way. And it has it has done so as the judge and Rittenhouse himself have become avatars for the right and the victims and the prosecution have become avatars for the left. And it has turned into a pretty typical push me, pull me about who you have right wing right wing media figures coming to the defense of Rittenhouse. You have left wing people attacking the judge, saying the judge is trying out for a slot on Fox News and all this stuff. And it's become a, a, a culture war story about something very sad. And by the way. Written. And complicated. It's complicated. But- He's going to be acquitted. So I, I'm. I really do believe he will be acquitted. Doesn't mean it's not complicated. Like it was bad judgment for him to be there. He right. shouldn't have been like wielding this weapon, whatever. But like that's not 
that doesn't mean he's guilty of a crime. Well, it doesn't either. mean he's guilty of murder. And any, the, but that is not my obsession. That is not my point. My point is that the murder of Ahmad Arbery, the jogger in Georgia, who was running through a neighborhood and a bunch of dudes, uh, a bunch of white dudes, killed him, right? And the, they thought he was a thief or an interloper or whatever. They followed him in a vehicle. They killed him. That's what the prosecution alleges. And that's, that's what the facts seem to support. And in this case, there has been very little coverage relative to the Rittenhouse case. The Rittenhouse case is more complicated, I understand, and there's more to talk about there. But I think a big part of the reason that the Rittenhouse case has uh, gotten so much more attention is that everybody has played their television roles, right? The judge has played his role. Rittenhouse plays it. It's, there's crying. There's drama. There's all of this stuff. But I would just say that if you want, if you if you were really concerned about race and racism in America, if that's really where you were, the Ahmad Arbery case is a much starker story, a much more important story to tell on those issues than the Rittenhouse case, which is, as you rightly point out, very complicated and all those things. But save a moment in your coverage, please, for Ahmad Arbery. My obsession, Chris, sometimes I don't want to be predictable, but sometimes you just have to do the obvious thing. Is well, we right before we sat down to record last week, Igor Dechenko, who was the Brookings Institute Institution scholar who was the chief source for the Steele dossier, was indicted for lying to FBI agents. Right. Which has led to a week of coverage about that, but also criticism on the right of the enormous amount of airtime that Steele and his now, we know, BS dossier got. So, for as an example of that, I just wanted to play this clip. Jane Mayer of The New Yorker, who is an unabashed left-winger, she went on Morning Joe in March of 2018 after writing a ridiculous profile of Steele. And this is, I think this captures the tenor of the coverage of Steele and his dossier until the FBI, until, until we learned essentially the FBI could not corroborate any of this stuff. Right. Let's play that clip. In the meantime, since he first started talking about this, so much of what he has suggested had happened has happened. Isn't it true? I know. I mean, and it's, and it's piece and you, by piece by piece. It's falling into place. And it's not just we who feel this, but the intelligence community is saying it. So there are three top former intelligence people in this piece on the record saying so much of it is is it's looking stronger and truer by the day. To say the least, I would say this was covered credulously yes. by the mainstream media, where the Steele dossier and the sources of it were given the benefit of the doubt. Now we're seeing either that claims in the document were entirely fabricated. John Durham, who was appointed by Barr to investigate uh, the origins of the FBI investigation into Trump, has uncovered alleged sources of the dossier say, we never said those things. We didn't have anything to do with it. So they were fabrications or these people are lying to the FBI. And what we learn is that there was a Clinton ally who was one of the sources of this information. So I loved that Jonathan Swan at Axios tweets when the indictment comes down last Thursday, 
He says, the charges are that not only did Clinton and the Democrats fund the dossier, but a longtime Clinton Dem operative was one of the sources for the rumors about Trump. Yep. Doesn't get much worse. Well, the only thing that could be worse is that that person, who is a political operative named Chuck Dolan, was an unregistered Russian agent. That would be worse. Uh, also. So I like Swan's tweet was great and Swan is great. Axios's big AM newsletter covers it the following way. They write, Trump allies have long claimed that Durham's revelations would expose the Russia investigation as a politically motivated witch hunt, blah, blah. Those charges have not materialized. It's like, no, actually, actually, that is exactly what this is demonstrating, that this was paid for by Democrats, sourced by Democrats, and seized on by Democrats in the FBI to investigate the Steele dossier. So that's one part of it, like the way that the media is characterizing it. The other part that I'm interested in is I covered the Trump White House, and at the end of the first year of the Trump White House, Pulitzer Prizes went to these huge teams of reporters that were devoted to covering the Trump-Russia relationship. And... Eric Wemple at the Washington Post went to the executive, the new executive editor, Sally Busby, to ask, are they going to review their coverage? Are they going to correct it in any way? She says, oh, yeah, this is good. We are continuing to report on the origins and ramifications of the document. In a follow up inquiry, we asked whether the Post is reviewing its previous work, dot, 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 and whether it would publish its findings. They did not reply to a statement. One of the things I noticed in covering the Trump White House was you could get all sorts of SHIT wrong. Yeah. But as long as you were wrong in the direction of producing information that would damage Trump, there was zero accountability. And in this case, like not only was there no accountability for getting things wrong, the people who reported on it were awarded the highest prize in the profession. And to not reckon with that and grapple with that and what it means for the news media and trust in the news media seems to me like it says everything about where we are now with news coverage that is increasingly partisan and political in nature and with half the country not trusting it. Well, I I always try to make sure that I tip the scale against my own bias when I am thinking about a story, when I'm thinking about a, a projection in a race, when I'm thinking about whatever. If it lines up with what I want and what I think, I have to hold it to a higher standard than I would if uh, I disagreed with it, right? So if it's, if it's, so let's say you're at the New York Times and you are very convinced that Donald Trump is a Russian asset and that he is being operated by Vladimir Putin. So this is more than just saying, Donald Trump has a creepy thing with Vladimir Putin, which he obviously does, and they attempted to collude, which they obviously did. Uh, as Dr. Krauthammer said, botched collusion is still collusion. But anyway, if you know the facts, but then you also have a belief that Donald Trump is a Russian asset being controlled by the Kremlin, if you think that's true, you should hold anything that would point to that to a higher standard to control for your own bias. If you know that that's what you think, you then have to up the you have to up the wall for something coming in. And I think you're quite right that the opposite happened. Now, of course, the the same thing happened on right media with things that would tend to exonerate Trump. And this is uh, human nature, which stalks us everywhere. But yes, in this in 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 this case, 
as Durham has, has now demonstrated, the credulousness with which the press met the Steele dossier, the way that it was handled, and all of this stuff was uh, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Essentially, they were like, well, this is a very well-regarded person, so the things in this document must be taken seriously. And what is the, like, logical... It's like an appeal to authority. Right. Without any any and, scrutiny and, of what the sources of that document and, and were. With, and without the acknowledgement that this is a, a, a file, right? This is a bunch of clippings. This is a bunch of stuff. This isn't prepared by intelligence. They put, they put on it a veneer of authority that just, it, it was unmerited. Chris, on that note, it is time for your favorite time of the week. I honestly don't know if I have it in me to say anything oh. nice this week. You got it. But, you, you've got okay. this. It is time for us to say something nice. Chris, as always, is going to lead by example. Well, the highest praise any writer can give another one is to say uh, that I wish that I had written it first. Uh, envy is the high is the highest compliment from one writer to another. And yet again, Kevin Williams has done it in a piece for National Review. What is Texas? He writes, and it is a long, beautifully written, crafted piece that that he is a Texan talks about what Texas was, what Texas is, what Texas is becoming. I cannot recommend it highly enough, and I especially cannot recommend it highly enough for people who are trying to understand the political change that's taking place in Texas, why it's changing and how it's changing. It is the the, it, the horse's mouth. So uh, read What is Texas? We will link that in the show notes. In fact, I am doing that right now. And we will also link my favorite item, which is a New York Post report. How, what percentage of your favorite items come from the New York uh, Post? They're all, Pretty high. It's a great Pretty newspaper. High. Pretty okay? high. A New York Post report that the Miami Herald has put a bot to work on the real estate beat. So the bot is writing these formulaic stories that, you know, X building sold for this amount of money. But in light of our, uh, my thought was, I like this because it's amusing and it's, an, it's like an actual trend. But coming off our discussion of the Steele dossier. It is. We're probably getting more accurate stuff from the bot than oh, from the people. Well, yes, we're losing. We're losing. We're losing a lot. But you, uh, you know, we're we're recording this at your office, so I hope that the employees here don't overhear us talking about how you want to replace them with bots. Oh well, the Beacon. I wasn't talking about the Free Beacon. <laughs> I just mean the New York Times. Beacon didn't do much coverage of the Steel. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm know. kidding. I know you love them, and you. I, it was it was very nice to meet some of them. They're, it's a young group of uh, very bright-eyed, bushy-tailed folks. Anyways, they're all out of a job. The bots are coming next week. It's too bad. <laughs> um, that is the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. And give us five stars or four and a half stars or four stars. I mean, no, five. five. Okay. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you go to give that five-star rating. Just search for Wretches. 